here all today. Uh, it looks like the weather has changed, and so that explains my Mr. Rogers look, so that's good. Um, but those are memories I'd like to just avoid remembering. But anyway, we're in the sixth week of a 10-week series entitled Choose Wisely, in which we're looking at the Proverbs. Uh, and in this series, I'm not going to recap everything except the general scope of what the series is about, which is about wisdom. It's about choosing differently. It's about choosing wisely. And the nature of choosing wisely starts with this, with a humility of heart that leads to a pursuit of God that leads to a submission to his will. When the Proverbs and when the Bible talks about wisdom, it is really talking about a humility leading to pursuit, leading to submission. And we talked a lot about that in this series, and every single week I'm going to reemphasize that. And we're applying that these three ideas of wisdom, pursuit, or humility, pursuit, and submission to all kinds of different areas in our life. We've applied them already to our relationship with God. We've applied them to our family relationships, to our friendships. And this morning, we begin to apply uh, this area of wisdom to our sexuality, to purity. Um, every time I talk about sexuality or purity, I always feel, I, I've made this joke before, but I always kind of feel like um, I'm on the halfway down a steep hill and there's a boulder coming down it and I'm like trying to blow the boulder back up the hill, Right? Because there's a sense that the topic that we're going to talk about just rarely gets talked about, you know. Uh, rarely does money and sex get talked about. And if one of the two does, it's usually money, right? But sexuality pervades and is this uh, disproportionately dangerous topic when mishandled. Just yesterday, my wife and I, we went and saw this um, play uh, at the auditorium theater called A Bronx Tale, and I'd never been before, and my wife loves to go to plays, and I do too, and so we were there, I love it maybe a little less than she does, but I go, and we were watching the play, and the play starts out, and it's this beautifully depressing story of a little boy who's Italian, and his name is Colangelo, and I always have a soft spot for that. My, my roommate and best friend is Michael Pellegrino Luciano, you know, so I understand the Italian culture a little bit through him. But Colangelo, the play starts out, and he's got two male-dominant relationships in his life. His father, who has walked the straight and narrow and who works hard, and the mobster boss of the neighborhood, whose name is Sonny. His father, Lorenzo, and his, his mobster friend, Sonny. And the show starts out, and it's the little boy sees Sonny kill another man in cold blood in the street. And the cops come by, and they ask, have you seen who killed him? And the mother and father are like, we didn't see nothing. And the little boy says, I saw. And you see him, and he, he, he goes in front of this lineup where all these men are standing. And he gets to the Sonny, the man who killed the man, and he recognizes him. And he says to the cop, I never saw that man in my life. And he starts this relationship with this crime boss. And there's this tension. And there's the tension between the father, Lorenzo, who's worked hard his whole life, who rides the bus every day. Or not rides it, he drives the bus and he makes very little. And the crime boss, who's always in the bar, who has tons of money and does no work. And the dad has this scene where he talks with his son, Colangelo, and he says, listen, Sonny controls people not with love, but with fear. You know, not with love, but with fear. Do not choose that path. But of course, here's this little nine-year-old boy, 
And Sonny accepts him into his family. He gives him 1,200 bucks. It's got a life of ease and prosperity without work. And you can sense that the father is torn, that he wants his son to make a different decision. But the tension of not going on a path that is so much easier, so much more uh, short-term fulfilling is too much. And the boy goes the other way. And I think about that, I thought about that when I was watching that that play, that story, and it has a beautiful ending, and I won't ruin it for you because you should go watch that someday. But I thought about that as I was preparing for this sermon, and my heart and mind was on that as I was sitting in those stands or those seats yesterday afternoon. And I thought, it's just like that with our sexuality. Those of us who are married and have lived a little bit longer, I haven't lived as long as some of you. I'm only 37, but those of you who haven't, and there are, there are pullings and there are urges to go in a certain direction that are so strong and that are so promising. And the tension is almost so much that you can see that very few resist. It's like Colangelo. Will we choose wisely or will we choose easily? Does this make sense? Will we choose wisely or will we choose easy? In the voice, and I'm going to use this language because it's the language of where we're going in the text, the voice of the adulteress, and by the adulteress, what I mean by that Uh, The Proverbs, as we'll see in just a moment, uses this language, the language of the adulteress, not to represent just a single woman who is, uh, like one woman who is looking to destroy people, but the adulteress really personifies. It's It's a woman that is used to characterize the forces of evil that long, that make us promises and long to destroy us. The forces of evil that make us promises and long to destroy us, the adulteress. And the voice of the adulteress is so strong. And wisdom is so incredibly tension-filled and resistance is so difficult. And so because you're a captive audience, I'm going to do my best once again, as I always do when I talk about this subject to appeal to the Colangelos in this audience, which we all kind of are. And on the one side is Sonny the adulteress, and on the other side is Lorenzo the wise, urging you to go on a path that is much more narrow, much more difficult, and is filled with angst. But in the end, there is life. And on the path of ease, there is death. And so let me go at it. This morning, our pathway is really simple. We're going to look at the nature of the adulteress. I'm going to give you a warning, and I'm going to give you a call, a call to action. The nature of the adulteress, a warning, and a call. And the warning and the call are like two parts of the same sentence. So let's get right to it. Turn in your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. And in this uh, particular instance... This is one of the few instances in the book of Proverbs where there is a little bit of extended context, where there is a story that is told. It is a fictional representative story where Solomon is talking to his son, 
And if you're using one of our Bibles, by the way, it's page 515, where Solomon creates a story to tell to his son, a, a representative story where he tells us of the nature of the adulteress. And I'm just going to read the whole thing to you, and then I'm going to talk about it with you. Verse 1, my son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings and as they were the apple of your eye, bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your hearts. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative, for they will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. Notice at the outset, we won't come back to these first short five verses, but notice at the outset that it is wisdom that the father is begging his son to listen to. And notice at the outset, verse five, that it is wisdom that will keep us from going in the wrong direction, following the way of evil, personified by the adulterous woman. Verse six, at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice, the window, and I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night was setting in, then out came a woman to meet him. She was dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now, in the street, now in the squares, and at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen, brazen face she said, Today I have fulfilled my vows. I have food from my fellowship offering at home, and so I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink deeply of love till morning, and let enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her talk and all at once he followed her. Like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, till a bird, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. For many are the victims that she has brought down. Her slain are like a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. That's encouraging, yeah? Now here's what I want to talk about. There are two aspects or two natures in this passage, two, two aspects of the nature of the adulteress. But remember that the adulteress is not just a woman. It could, it could just as easily be a man. It, it just as easily could represent anyone who uses the forces of evil to manipulate and coerce others to their destruction. In some sense, the message of the Bible is not just that... Uh, is, it is that humanity is evil, but that there is a force of evil behind our actions. And that force, 
That's sometimes personified by the devil, sometimes just talked about as the force of evil itself. That force looks to destroy, and it uses humanity to do its bidding at times. Jesus, when he comes around and he starts to talk in the Gospels, it's almost as if at times he is saying that this force that is using humanity to do its means, you know, to destroy is the force that Jesus really stands against. That is why Jesus is always for the individual to be freed from the forces of evil. And the adulterous woman personifies one who uses the forces of evil and uses one of their most destructive tools, which is a mishandling of our sexuality, to ensnare and destroy. And notice... First, that the nature of the adulteress is to prey on the simple. The adulteress preys on the simple. We see it very clearly in verse 6. There is a man who is simple. Notice in verse 6. And then it says, it describes him a little further, does it not? Or verse 7. I saw among the simple, I noticed a young man, someone who was in his youth. Because sometimes the young do not have the experience To know what is what. Now, sometimes the old have experienced the wrong things for too long. And like Howard Hendricks, one of my professors said, age does not bring wisdom, you know. Sometimes practicing the wrong things over a lifetime makes you even more unwise. Does this make sense? Practicing the right time, right things over a long period of time makes you wise. So age kind of gives you an advantage in that you could have had the time to practice the right things. It does not, by default, make you wise. But the simple man is unlike the fool or unlike the mocker that we looked at in week two. The simple man is the one who just simply does not know what he doesn't know. Notice that the simple man, the young man, is walking in a place that he should have never been in at a time when he should not have been there, right? And notice with me that When the woman finds him, that she is lurking. You know, lurking is one of those kind of one-syllable words. It's kind of interesting. But do you know what the word lurk means very simply? To stay hidden in ambush. To stay hidden with the intent of ambushing someone. That's what lurking is. And so this woman is lurking. She is hiding herself for the direct purpose of finding someone that she can ensnare and bring down. Notice that she is dressed seductively. In fact, the text doesn't say it that nicely, does it? It says she is dressed like a prostitute. Notice that the text tells us that her behavior is very aggressive. She has a crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. And when the young man comes around the corner, she grabs him and kisses him. And then she begins her speech. Verses 6 through 13. The nature of the adulteress is to prey on the simple, but the adulteress uses one other uh, just incredibly dangerous tactic. The adulteress makes promises she has no intention of keeping, for in fact, she cannot even keep them. We see through 13, we see the nature of the young man and the nature of the adulteress, the description of the young man and the description of the adulteress. But in verse 14, we begin to hear the words of the adulteress. 
And she begins to make persuasive speech. The man has just walked around a corner and a beautiful woman dressed inappropriately and seductively has grabbed him without words and kissed him. And now she begins to talk. He is not prepared for this. He had no idea. And now she says, verse 14, I've recently, I have just recently come back from making an offering to God. My heart is clear and I have extra food from the offering I have made. Do you see this in verse 14? There were certain offerings in the Old Testament that you would take your offering and the priest would keep a portion and the offerer would keep a portion. And so she has meat from her offering. She has now trying to assuage the guilt that he might feel and saying, I am a spiritual woman like you. I've just made my offering. My heart is pure. And she says, I am ready to go. And with aggressive and destructive intent, she talks about how she has set up her bedroom. She talks with persuasive words, the text tells us in verse 21, and she tries to lead him astray and seduce him. Little does he know, the simple man, the young man, that if he follows her, that he will be, look at it in verse 22 and following, like an ox going to slaughter, like a deer stepping into a trap, and like a bird going into a snare. It will lead to his death. The adulteress preys on the simple. The adulteress makes promises she has no intention of keeping. And so it is the same with so many aspects of life. And yet, sexuality is just different than anything else. Now, you may be thinking at this point that probably most of you, probably none of you have ever lurked around a corner seeking to sexually ensnare someone. And so it would be very easy to turn off your minds and say, yeah, this, this woman is a creep. I am nothing like her. And you know what? I believe you. I doubt any of you are like that. And while it would be really easy to think that this doesn't apply to us because we're not sexual predators, the vast majority of the people in this room are just simply looking for love, right? And the vast majority of the people in our world are people who are just looking for love. And yet, they pursue it in ways that are incredibly dangerous. They're incredibly dangerous physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And that is because the Proverbs warn us and call us to a different way of life. They do not warn us and call us to a different way of life <laughs> to bring us low, but to raise us high. Does this make sense? Not to destroy our fun, but to bring us to a place where we will not be destroyed. And so the Proverbs give us a warning. It is very simple. The warning of the book of Proverbs goes something like this. First, mishandling your sexuality is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, the text says this about our sexuality. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Here the context is about a man who sleeps with a married woman and says, if you do that, that man's going to be out for your revenge. But really, this word picture 
The word picture of scooping fire into your lap or coals, uh, walk, walking on coals, is an incredible word picture for just how powerful our sexuality is. Fire in and of itself is a really good thing, right? When it's in the right place, you know? Inside the circle of stones if you go camping. Inside your fireplace, you know? Really bad idea to bust your wood, put it in the center of your living room, your wooden chairs, and light them on fire to stay warm, right? Fire is a really powerful thing, but it's a powerful thing meant to be in its proper place because our sexuality has the power to disproportionately harm us in a way that few other things can. Yeah? If you have mishandled your sexuality, you know what I mean. And you know what I mean in a way that I'm not trying to cause guilt, but rather bring life and hope and peace. For when we've mishandled our sexuality, we know it is just different than something else. Let me give you a few examples. Um, it is just different if you, when you started college, if you got a credit card and you rang up a lot of credit card debt. That really stinks, doesn't it? But if you went to a party and you mishandled your sexuality, that stays with you in a way that a couple years of delivering pizzas and taking on a second job doesn't. Do you understand what I mean? And it's not even just that if you have made a bad choice. If you're caught in a pyramid scheme and somebody or somebody steals your identity and they take $5,000 from your bank account that you never get back. You feel a sense of violation that really stinks, right? But if somebody has abused you in your past sexually, there is a healing that is more difficult to overcome than losing that five grand to a swindler, isn't there? I say all this to say that our sexuality is disproportionately powerful. It has the power to do incredible good in our lives, and it has the power to do incredible damage. If you've mishandled your sexuality, this sermon is not, as I said before, intended to make you feel guilt and shame. It is intended to give you love and acceptance and hope. For whenever I look at the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, whenever he interacts with those who have mishandled their sexuality, his response to them is not shame and stay away, but is a, <laughs> a beautiful gentleness with a startling honesty. Does this make sense? There are two stories I want to bring your attention to, and I want to take my time to tell them to you, for they are so stunningly beautiful. The first, both are told by the uh, author of the Gospel of John, John himself. Not a very creative title, but there it is. John recorded stories uh, of, in history of what Jesus had said and done, and he tells us that his express purpose for creating these stories, for, for rec not creating, recording these stories and writing them down, is that he says, this has all been written and recorded so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. <laughs> right? In John chapter 4, John records a story that he would have been a part of experiencing. 
and would have flabbergasted him. Jesus and the disciples have made a decision to travel through a region called Samaria. Now, to understand what this means, you have to understand a little bit of historical background. Back in ancient Israel, when the kingdom of Israel was first established as a monarchy, it was one monarchy of 12 different tribes. After a couple kings, in fact, after only three kings, the monarchy was divided, and there became a northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Israel. There was never a good king in the ten northern tribes of Israel, not a single one. And because of their sin, eventually, and because of their evil, they were eventually uh, given over to exile by the Assyrian Empire. And when the Assyrian Empire came and took them over, the Assyrians had a very cruel way of conquering those who had resisted them. And what they did was they forced them into marriages and they bred their ethnicity right out of them. Isn't that kind of sick? They forced the Israelites into marriages and they bred the national identity of Israel right out of them. Eventually, the Assyrian Empire fell and eventually these now Israeli half-breeds. I use that language and is it offensive? Definitely is. I use that language because that is how they were seen. The southern tribe of Israel, uh, Judah, then looked at this northern tribe who had now returned into their land, and they now called it Samaria, and they looked at them as half-breeds and lower-class citizens who had not stayed faithful to God and who were no longer a part of them. In fact, Samaria, you had to travel through Samaria to get to other regions in the nation of Israel. And the Israelites would simply not even go through that land. They would go days out of their way so that they wouldn't even have to go through the Samaritan land, even though it cut off time on their their trip, yeah? It's kind of like how Woody Hayes wouldn't fill his gas tank in Michigan, right? And Woody Hayes' team lost yesterday, so that's a good day. So, and the team from the North won, so that's my team, yeah. So... I just have to point that out, right, Chris? So, doesn't happen often, so I may not get it up very often anyway. So, all of this has come to play. The disciples would have been surprised that they were even going to travel through Samaria. And here they are in a Samaritan village, a Samaritan town. The disciples have left to go get food. All of this is John chapter 4. And Jesus goes and he sits by a well to rest. Now, Jesus, in his omniscience, that means his all-knowingness, must have known what is to come. And as he sits on the well, a woman comes, a Samaritan woman, and she comes to draw water. And the scene, I can guarantee, would have gone just like this. This woman would have kept her eyes down. She wouldn't have made eye contact by the way they looked and the way they dressed. It would have been obvious and clear that this was not a Samaritan man, that this was a, uh, a religious rabbi who is not Samaritan, who is a Jew. And she would have gone to the well, and she would have kept her eyes down, hoping to get out of there as quickly as possible. I guarantee you it would have been like this. And Jesus looks her in the eyes and says, and this may not seem gentle or kind, but it it would have startled the Samaritan woman. And he says to her, can I have a drink of water? And she says to him, How can you, being a Jew, 
ask me for a drink of water, for I'm a Samaritan woman. And Jesus says, and Jesus is really weird here, but if you're the son of God, you know it's a little different. He says, if you knew the water that I have, you would not, you would come to me to ask me for a drink. The woman says to him, what are you talking about? This is crazy. This well is really deep and you don't have any rope and bucket, you know? And he says, the water that I offer will make it so that you never thirst again. Now, symbolically, of course, we know that Jesus is not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about a spiritual thirst. And the woman says to him, can you tell me how to get this water? Jesus responds, go get your husband and I will tell you both. And the woman says, I have no husband. Now, here's what's startling. Startlingly honest. Jesus turns to the woman and says, you are right to say you have no husband, but you have five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. This is a woman who has been promiscuous, who has been married, not been married, has slept around, has had six different men, right? And Jesus interacts with her with full knowledge of all of that. And she knows it. Have you ever been somewhere with your kids maybe and you, you tell your kids, you know, just be careful of them. <laughs> you know, let's not spend too much time around that type. Whatever that type is, that's the Samaritan woman. She is that type. And Jesus, knowing all of her baggage, engages and interacts with her. The woman rushes home. And it is the most beautiful scene. She rushes home, and she doesn't just bring back the husband who is not her husband. She brings her entire village out to the well to hear from this man who told me everything I ever did. The, the men and the women of the village beg Jesus to stay, and at the end, he does. And as he is leaving, the people of the village say this. It's beautiful. At first... We heard and believed because of what you said, but we do not believe because of what you've said anymore. For we have seen and heard the man who is the savior of the world. Yeah? Shame and guilt, this is so important. Our shame and our guilt tells us we are not acceptable. It baits us into making decisions that will destroy us, and then it tells the little you know, conscience voice thing in our head that we're not worthy to be a part of them anymore, right? And Jesus says, I know everything you've ever done and I accept you and I love you and I don't want you to go that path anymore. There's another story. It's a little... Uh, it's a little shorter, but it goes something like this. It's found in John chapter 8. And the text says this, that there was a woman who was caught in adultery. Now, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, had discovered her in the act. And the religious leaders, rather than do anything about it, saved her and then brought her to the place where they knew that Jesus would be at the time when they knew he would be there. 
And they formed a circle around this woman, which have you ever, <laughs> I'm 6'4", 240, so there's not a lot of people bigger than me very often. But here is this, picture it, this little woman on the ground, surrounded by these big religious men. And there she is in the dirt of the arid ground of Israel. And Jesus comes into the scene, and the men turn, who surround her, and with smiles on their face says, we've caught this woman in adultery. What are you going to do about it? Jesus gets on the ground. He starts to write in the sand. I don't know why. We don't know what he wrote. And he just lets the tension grow. And finally, he looks up and he says, any of you who are without sin be the first to throw the stone. As wild and as crazy as it might seem, in that day, if you were caught in adultery, the law said you could be stoned to death. And those men had brought her and encircled her with the intention of slaughtering her And they hoped Jesus would say, go ahead and do it. Discrediting his message of love and acceptance and healing. And Jesus says, any of you men who are without sin, be the first to throw the stone. And the men make their way away in shame. And Jesus looks at the woman on the ground in the dirt probably wet with tears. And he doesn't say to her, it's not that big of a deal, right? Adultery is not that big of a thing. He says, go and sin no more. Because the voice of the adulteress is strong, but the voice of the adulteress leads to death. When we follow the voices that destroy us, it leads to a place of us wanting to go into a further place of isolation. And yet the message of Jesus has always and ever been, come back and don't go that way anymore. Come back and don't go that way anymore. And as a side note, if Jesus has this kind of message then the church must have this kind of message as well. Yes? The church must have this kind of message. For there are many people out there struggling with guilt and shame. And at times, those of us who follow Jesus think to ourselves, well, I'm not in that situation because I did better than you did. And what we should be thinking is, I am so grateful for what God has saved me from and kept me from. And there is always room for the broken and the hurting, for that is the message of Jesus. Jesus said, the the Proverbs teach us that mishandling our sexuality is incredibly dangerous. In fact, it is disproportionately dangerous because it leads to a guilt and shame that goes beyond the guilt and shame of any other type of thing any other kind of bad choice or sin. And yet, there is never a place where it is too far for the love of God to encircle you you and save you and restore you. It doesn't mean the consequences won't remain, but it does mean that there's nothing you can do 
to make yourself unacceptable or unwanted by God. And yet, if we could, would we not want to save ourselves from the trouble of all of that? And so the warning is, our sexuality is incredibly and disproportionately dangerous, and the call is that we should protect ourselves by protecting our sexuality. Proverbs 27, 12 says this, the prudency danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. The prudent see danger and they take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. To those of us, or to those of you, who are single, to those of you who are single, your sexuality is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly powerful. It is incredibly special. Protect it. Protect it. Don't be a part of someone else's story that they will one day have to explain to someone else. Don't be a part of someone else's story. And remember that it is exclusivity one day that fuels intimacy. Exclusivity that fuels intimacy. It is not experience. You know what I mean by this? I mean it like this. There's never been a relationship ever where John Doe says to Mary Jane, I really like you, Mary Jane, but you're just not experienced sexually enough before me. I wish you had had a little more experience. I like everything else about you, but I don't like that, so peace out. It's never happened, has it? Does this make sense? From some of your faces, I don't think it does. (laughs) There's never been a person who really likes a man or a woman, a girl or a boy, and because she didn't have enough sexual experience beforehand, decided to not stay with her. In fact, if you have mishandled your sexuality and you have to explain it one day to someone that you wish you didn't have to explain it to, then you know (laughs) what I'm talking about. Protect yourself. We talked earlier about this fire. You know how sexuality is like fire. That's what Proverbs says. And that it is meant to be in its proper place. And in its proper place, it is incredibly, incredibly powerful and life-giving. But outside of it, incredibly dangerous. (laughs) The message of love one another as you have loved, as I have loved you. This is the message of Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you is, as it pertains to our sexuality, a message of exclusivity that our sexuality is to be saved from marriage within the confines of commitment, within the confines of commitment. And just like that little boy, Colangelo, thinking of deciding between Sonny and Lorenzo, the mishandling of our sexuality will always feel better in the moment. It will always be incredibly alluring and you must resist if you are to choose the path of life. Not because you'll make yourself unacceptable to God, but because you will feel unacceptable to God. Not because people won't care about you anymore, because you will feel like they don't care about you. And it will destroy you on the innermost parts of your being. Because sex isn't just physical, is it? It is not just physical. And somehow, 
Our culture knows that, and our culture still baits us to do the wrong things. Have you ever watched any sitcom? You watch Seinfeld. You watch, I should not even tell these stories because it shows the shows I've watched in the past. But Seinfeld, or you know the one, uh, never mind. So any sitcom ever, whether it's drama or comedy, they always acknowledge, and the characters that always mishandle their sexuality always are damaged emotionally, and yet people continue to do it. To the single, protect yourself. Sexuality is a fire meant to be in the confines of marriage. To the married, our sexuality is a very powerful thing. Our sexuality is a very powerful thing. It is dangerous and it is special. Look to satisfy each other sacrificially in marriage. In every way, look to satisfy the other's needs beforehand, but sexually as well. One of the most bizarre sections in all of the Bible goes something like this. It's uh, an epistle by Paul to the church at Corinth. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. And it says this. This is weird. Your body, as the husband, does not belong to you, but it belongs to your wife. And to the wife, <laughs> your husband's body does not belong to him, it belongs to you. Do not abstain sexually Unless by mutual consent so that you might give yourself to prayer. Now, I know we don't talk about sex much in church. It's probably good. But that's really weird. Have you ever met a couple that's like, yeah, we haven't been having sex lately because we've been praying a lot, you know? If it wasn't a Christian crowd, that joke would have done better. Anyway. (laughs) What do you think, Nate? Is that true? Uh, (laughs) Our sexuality is incredibly powerful. It is meant for marriage. And it is meant for marriage. You see? Our sexuality, if mishandled, is incredibly dangerous. Protect it by protecting your sexuality. Let me pray for you. Dear God, we're so grateful for what you've done in the lives of each and every one of us and what you will do in our lives. And we come to you in this morning as we sit in these gray seats with expectancy, asking, hoping, daring to believe that you by your spirit are going to show up in our lives and transform us. And we pray as we talk and consider this topic, which is kind of awkward and kind of not talked about a lot, that you would give us the empowerment of the Spirit of God to live in a way with our sexuality that is wise. That you might enable us through humility and pursuit and submission to your will to experience the life that is more full because it is free. It is free of guilt and it is free of shame and it is free of worry. Be with our marriages and protect them and be with those who are unmarried and help them to protect themselves until that time, if that comes. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me as I dismiss you?
Uh, I have one announcement before we do. After church today, there's a missions potluck. We are privileged to have our missionaries from Poland, uh, Mike and Agnieszka Green. Do you mind just raising your hand real quick? Yep. This is Mike and Agnieszka Green. They're going to be, they're missionaries to Poland, and they're going to be sharing about what they're doing in the second hour uh, up in the ABF at 1030, and they're also going to be doing a separate presentation after church today at noon. Uh, And so it's a potluck, so bring something to share, or if you don't have anything, you're still welcome to attend. There's always plenty of food, Um, and if there isn't, then you can go home and eat afterwards. (laughs) But we would love to have you. At this time, I want to look at you and say the benediction, which is nothing more than a prayer of empowerment and challenge to live out of what we have just heard. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, and it is beautiful. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be strong, have courage, and do everything in love. Amen. Hey, enjoy this cold fall Sunday.